welcome. So we've been in Luke for a while, and uh, last week we um, <clears throat> spoke, uh, we, we found ourselves in Luke uh, 22, verses 39 through 46 or 47. This is where, of course, he's, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with his 11 apostles, because the 12th apostle is now out fulfilling his betrayal. And so I just want to read through that a little bit, and, uh, and then we'll do a little bit of a review. And then we'll go into the, the teaching for this morning. Luke twenty two thirty nine says this, And he came out and went, <clears throat> as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And we came, when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it is here last week that we asked the question, if Jesus knew the answer God was going to give to his request, then why pray? And we talked about how sometimes we have that same feeling or that same issue. We're going through something in our lives or maybe a loved one is ill or something like that, and we pretty much know the outcome. Unless God intervenes, we know the outcome. And of course, we, we are permitted to pray that God would intervene if it's His will to intervene. So we ask this question. If Jesus already knew the answer, <clears throat> then why pray? And our answer to that question was, by Jesus making His request known to His Father, it, cre- it created an opportunity for obedience. Because that's really what our role is as believers, is obedience. And we talked about that quite a bit last week, so I don't want to talk about that much more this morning. Just to say this, being refused a request demands either obedience or denial. And if we take it a step further, it offers an opportunity to be humbly obedient And, of course, Jesus humbly submitted to the will of his Father and thus received the peace of God. And, of course, Jesus, um, we read in verse 43, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him after that part of the prayer. And then an interesting statement in verse 44 says this, And being in agony. And agony is agonia, and it means a struggle for victory as in a gymnastic, exercising and wrestling to strive, or some severe mental struggles and emotions, agony and anguish. Then he prayed more earnestly. So he said, Father, I pray this for, uh, for you to remove this if it's possible. And God refused that request. So he sent an angel to comfort him and to strengthen him. And yet we see that he went back and prayed even more earnestly. And that word earnestly means to stretch out the hand. Thus it means to be stretched out, probably on the ground. So I find this very interesting in that although Jesus submitted God's will humbly and through prayer, it did not relieve the emotional struggle that was taking place within him. We learn something here about our God. And we learn something here perhaps about us. 
And that is this, that if we are praying to receive relief, and that's the sole purpose of our prayer, we may not get that relief. But that doesn't mean that God has left us or that God did not hear us. In fact, it means that, no, Tom, you need to struggle through this. Perhaps that's what it means. Have you not found this to be true in your life at times? And I think at times at that point, it even seems more severe. Certainly did for Jesus because he went back and prayed even more earnestly. It says, His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, exhausted from sorrow. So we are reminded we do not pray for the sole purpose of what God can do for us. Rather, we pray out of obedience that we may bless God. And we do this by surrendering every part of who we are, which in turn acknowledges who God is, right? He's holy. He's just. He's amazing. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. So this is where we left our story Last week is in verse 47. While he was still speaking, he went back to the apostles and he said, Why are you sleeping? And he began to give them the same instruction. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was saying those words, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. So a little bit of a warning about the lesson today. This is more of a narrative <clears throat> We might get to three points by the end of the sermon if we get to the end of the sermon. But it's more of a narrative. So it might be just as important to kind of, kind of listen and, and be involved in the narrative as much as it is to do anything else you might want to do. But, so this is where we left our story last week. From this point on, things are going to proceed very, very quickly. We will once again be using text from all four Gospels that we might get a more complete picture of this. So... To set the stage. So we see here that Jesus had just completed his question to the apostles. Why are you sleeping? And that the crowd was within sight and sound of him at that point. Gethsemane was located to the east of Jerusalem at the western edge of the Mount of Olives. And the multitude would have marched through the Kidron Valley, we talked about that last week, and then encountered Jesus and the 11 apostles at Gethsemane. As a reminder, the 11 apostles had two swords. They were shorter swords. They were for more of a personal attack. Had two swords among them. They had just completed several hours in an upper room celebrating the Passover when they arrived in the garden, Jesus left eight of the apostles at the outer edge of Gethsemane, and he had taken Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, <clears throat> deeper into the garden and left them there to pray. And then he walked further in still, just to kind of get the picture. And this is where he prayed and was in agony. Following his prayers, he came back to the three, Peter, James, and John, and then joined the other eight at the western edge of Gethsemane. The eleven are gathered around him when the multitude arrives. There's eleven Jewish men around the Jewish Messiah, although they don't realize this is who he is. This, this comes into play a little bit later. There's eleven men around him, much like they've always had. 
If you could get closer to Jesus, wouldn't you have gotten closer to Jesus? So it isn't that they, they fanned out into a church formation. They were friends. And they were, they were close to one another. They had these two swords. And the eleven are gathered around him. So let's take in the scene for a moment. Eleven very tired men. Remember Passover, hours and hours and hours. Through the meal, through the rituals, hours into the night. They're very tired. Two of them with short sores gathered around a blood-stained Jesus. Just before the multitude arrived. Well, how do we know there's blood stained? Because he was sweating blood. And it said it was running down. So think about this. Jesus comes back out of the garden with the three to the other eight. And he's blood stained. Luke twenty two forty four, And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So coming up a hill, a small hill really, was a multitude. Now, several questions come to mind. I want to go back to this. What was Judas's motive for this act of betrayal? Let's think, let's think through this. Did he believe that Jesus was the Messiah? No. As a matter of fact, the other 11 didn't believe he was the Messiah. So it couldn't be a religious reason, right? Did Judas believe that Jesus was going to lead them to greater things? I think this is the problem. I think Judas's motive pretty much was 30 pieces of silver. That was it. Nothing more noble or more dramatic than 30 pieces of silver. His motive was not a misplaced act of patriotism for the sake of Israel. It was not, not because he felt that Jesus was a fraud. He had walked with Jesus and witnessed amazing things that only 11 other men in human history had witnessed. One of 12 that actually walked with Jesus Christ. I believe that even if Judas had recognized that Jesus was the Christ, he would have still chosen the 30 pieces of silver. Think about that. Why? Because I, I think we see this today, don't we? Of all of the millions of people who have seen and heard indisputable evidence that Jesus is the Son of God presented to them, only a few have believed. Most will choose the riches of this world. <clears throat> Another question I had was, how large was the multitude? How many of you have seen a number of films that kind of deal with this subject in the Garden of Gethsemane and the, and the multitudes coming up? I've seen, I'm an old guy, so I go back to King of Kings, which <clears throat> I, think, I think it was in color. Typically, a smaller group of people is portrayed, and I think that's because of budget. <laughs> because if you, read this, if you read the account that we're going to hear today, it's pretty amazing. 
The Bible actually gives us a pretty good idea of the size of the multitude and who was in the multitude, by the way. But before we go there, let's look at what was taking place in Jerusalem in the past few days prior to this multitude confronting Jesus. Yes, it was Passover, and there were probably upwards of a million pilgrims. Probably a million in the city. So they doubled the census. And yes, Rome was very nervous every time this holiday occurred because they basically had one million people coming into the city of Jerusalem that was nothing short than hated Rome. And during the Passover celebration, there was a lot at stake for both the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. Rome is a little ways away, right? And there's someone there that has authority over all. As a matter of fact, they recognize him as a god. They have a, he has authority over all of these things. The Jewish authorities, which were the chief priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, and more, they had to maintain control of the masses of their own people so that Rome would not remove them from power, which they relished the most and thus threaten their freedom of culture or worship in the future. You can kind of hear the Roman authority go to the Jewish authority and say, listen, we're going to have a cabinet meeting. And what we want is we want some representatives. And Annas, we want you there. Caiaphas, we want you there. Herod, we want you there. Herod Antipas, we want you there. Because this is always a dangerous time for the Roman Empire. You have to understand this is a privilege we are granted. This is all conjecture, by the way. This isn't in the Bible, just so you know. We, we have this situation every year. And all it takes is one spark, and the whole thing goes up in smoke. I can, I can envision that taking place. The Jewish authorities had a lot on the table. The Roman authorities, Pontius Pilate and King Herod Antipas, he was both. He really wasn't a Jewish man necessarily, and if he was, he wasn't dedicated by any means. His father was Herod the Great, who was horrendous. But the Roman authorities, Pontius Pilate especially, their ability to maintain order during this time would be evaluated and decisions would be made in Rome concerning their political futures. No one wanted any trouble at this time. Pilate, although typically stationed in Rome, was staying at his palace in Jerusalem. He did this every time there was Passover, so he might more closely monitor everything that was taking place. And by the way, this would have dictated that at least one cohort of Roman soldiers would have accompanied Pontius Pilate. A cohort is 600 men. So, In comes Pontius Pilate, 600 extra Roman soldiers. They're going through Jerusalem. They're marching. They are observing. They are monitoring. And they're keeping Pilate apprised of all things. Pilate was well aware that just a few days prior to what was currently taking place at the edge of Gethsemane, a teacher or a prophet, or whatever, by the name of Jesus, rides into Jerusalem, and the Jews created a spectacle of his arrival. So Pontius Pilate is saying, 
He's already dispatched the troops. And he said, this is this Jesus. Perhaps they said that to him. He goes, I know him. How would he know him? Well, Matthew 2, 21, 9 says this, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Pilate was very well aware of the impact Jesus had on Jerusalem and could still have on Jerusalem. Then there was an uprising of sorts in their temple surrounding this fellow, but they decided not to get involved. Remember what he did? He went in and threw everybody out. And you can imagine the Roman soldiers who are close by and they're seeing this turmoil and they're seeing this violence. And maybe one soldier looks to the other and says, should we intervene? And the one soldier goes, none of our business. These are the Jews. These are the Jews. It's none of our business. Do not get involved. I'm sure they reported it. I'm sure Pontius Pilate heard about this. In addition to these things, Pilate had already squelched one attempted insurrection from the Jews that resulted in the arrest and the imprisonment of a fanatical Jewish criminal. <clears throat> Mark fifteen seven, the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Things are boiling over. There's an insurrection attempt. They arrest this guy named Barabbas for murder during that insurrection. And now Pilate says, Now Jesus is at the edge of Gethsemane. And we have this man who came from his own people. And he is turning him in. So tensions are high and no one was taking anything for granted. Pilate's approach to any trouble was kind of like the old saying, you use a sledgehammer to kill a gnat. And that was Pilate's approach. We are taking no chances here. Pilate is made aware of a potential problem at the outskirts of the city involving this Jesus, who seems to have the charisma to have excited the entire city when he first came into Jerusalem. Now, a disciple of this Jesus had approached the religious elites, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, whoever it may, be, may have been, who then approached one of his soldiers, meaning one of Rome's soldiers, and then he went to his commander, and that commander went to his commander, and eventually it got to Pilate. Pilate says, and this is speculation, okay, we'll deal with this but take an entire cohort with you because we have no idea what we're going to meet in Gethsemane. And now we find ourselves at the edge of the garden. Luke twenty-two forty-seven. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. ESV translation. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Well, who was in the crowd? Who was in the multitude? Mark fourteen forty three. we read this. While he, meaning Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
crowd had swords and clubs. The chief priests were there. The scribes and the elders were there. John gives us a little more detail. John 18.3 says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, which is interpreted a cohort in the uh, New American Standard Bible, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, a cohort is 600 men. And a little later in Luke, there are still more details. Luke twenty-two fifty-two says, And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. We'll stop there. Then here are some details about the details. Jews were not permitted to carry swords. They had a Second Amendment situation, I guess. But Rome could carry swords. So anybody with a sword was a Roman. Clubs. The temple guard carried clubs, equal perhaps to our modern-day nightstick, to keep peace within the temple. The temple guards were Jewish. They carried nightsticks, and they patrolled the temple, especially during Passover. So their number were probably increased substantially because of a million visitors. So you're getting the picture here. The multitude that comes to Jesus and his 11 apostles is at least 600 soldiers. The temple guard, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes. So here's the point. At the time Jesus had finished his final, final instruction to his apostles in Luke 24, 6, Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This crowd, conservatively, 600 soldiers, 70 elders, because that's how many there were in Jerusalem, Pharisees, scribes, <clears throat> temple police, chief priests, and their servants. We know this because Peter, in trying to kill one of his servants, missed and cut off his ear. Everyone was all in. The religious elites had finally taken action. And this was it. It was now or never. Crisis point. They made their move according to Judas' instructions. And now Judas was standing toe-to-toe and face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And you would think there might be an opportunity for a tender moment for reflecting upon the past three years, wouldn't you? Now think about this. Have you ever been in a situation where the moment began to carry the people instead of the people carrying the moment? There's this heating up, this acceleration of emotions. And suddenly you're in the midst of a movement. And this movement begins to carry you. You know, I don't want to give Judas that kind of credit, and we'll go through that a little bit a little bit later. But by now, Judas couldn't have stopped it had he wanted to. He never wanted to, by the way. We have to be careful we do not begin to feel sorry for this man. He knew what he was doing. Toe-to-toe, face-to-face with Jesus. 
For many, this would have been an opportunity to repent and to receive. But this was not to be. Judas would give himself no opportunity to repent. His mind was made up. This is provable. Let me give you something a little extra. I know people who do this very thing today. They will intentionally avoid any situation where they might be persuaded to receive Christ. Do you know those people? Because they have already made up their minds. That's how people get doors slammed in their faces if you go visiting. That's how people begin to look at the floor when they finally figure out you're talking about Jesus. It's how people can become very angry in a moment's notice and within a second. They have consistently chosen to reject Christ and each opportunity that comes their way only galvanizes their previous decisions. This was Judas. These are the instructions Judas had given the leaders. Mark 14, 44 says this, The one I will kiss is the man. <clears throat> Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Judas left himself no opportunity of regret. As soon as he saw Jesus, he said, when I see this man, I will show you who he is. I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. And so when Judas walks up, this is the scripture. He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. I'm sure that many of us have wondered about this method of betrayal. Is there something significant about being betrayed with a kiss? Yes and no. Some people have made a whole bunch of things out of this, you know, a large issue. I don't think it's that large, but it is significant. Number one, I think Judas was mocking Jesus. If you're not going there with your mind made up, then why would you kiss Jesus on the cheek who claims to be God? Let's talk about that. This form of greeting or ceremony was reserved for those who were in authority from those over whom they rule. <clears throat> First Samuel 10 one says this, and Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. This is Saul, coronation of Saul, the king. <clears throat> poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? So when Samuel, who was a priest and the judge... He goes up to Saul for the first king and he anoints him with oil and then he kisses him. And this is Samuel's way of saying to everyone who is watching, this is the man that God has brought to us to lead us. This man is chosen by God and because of that, we support him. And I kissed him on the cheek and that, that is my way of saying from God through me, Saul, you are of God. You are king. You know, it's possible that 
This was Judas's last despicable act of indignation and treason to Jesus. See, we can't give Judas any credit here. Psalm 2, beginning with verse 10, says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And here it is, verse 12, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You kiss the Son because you are acknowledging that He is the Son of God. Of course, this is prophecy. It takes place in a different circumstance, but it's prophecy nonetheless. Judas knew this. The kiss was always intended to be a sign of submission. Judas's kiss would have been a slap in the face to Jesus. It would show that Judas denied on every level that Jesus had any power or authority over him. Thus, he feared no rebuke from Jesus. Now, ask yourself this question. If you really thought that God, if Jesus had any any possibility of being the Son of God, would you have treated Him that way? You know what the answer is? Yes. We do it today. We just don't do it as graphically. This act of treachery was the equivalent of those at the cross mockingly telling Jesus, save yourself. Judas is saying the same thing. He claims to be the Son of God. He can't even save himself. How can he save us? And Judas is kissing Jesus on the cheek and he's saying, you have no power. You claim to be him? Well, let me give you the kiss. And I'm mocking you with this because really it's pointing out who they're supposed to capture. And that's the next point. It's an unmistakable sign for the soldiers. You know, sometimes we have to be reminded that that was not an era in which these events occurred where you had posters <clears throat> and break, late breaking news and, and uh, bulletins and videos and all of these kinds of things. As a matter of fact, they didn't even have pencils and papers. This was the era of word of mouth and the retelling of great stories. In addition to this, Jesus was not a standout celebrity in the looks department. There was nothing special about him. Isaiah 53, 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of, the, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that, he should look, that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You might think, well, you know, the, the Bible really doesn't point those kind of things out. Well, let me, let me read something to you from 2 Samuel 14, 25. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom, David's son. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. The Bible points out beauty. And the Bible says this about Jesus. You, you probably would have looked right past him. Judas knew that Jesus would be surrounded by his apostles, all of whom were Jewish men about the same height, dressed the same, and some perhaps with more of a standout appearance than Jesus. These soldiers had no idea what Jesus looked like. 
That's very possible. The worst possible scenario would be to arrest the wrong guy. So one more point concerning the kiss of Judas. There was a decorum established concerning being in the presence of authority back then and how one should approach that person. We would call it civility. We would call it etiquette, uh, both of which are lacking to some degree in this culture. But here's the decorum. If you were a slave and you approached, as an example, Jesus, the slave would kiss the feet of the master. If you were a little above a slave, the slave would kiss the hem of the garment. Anybody remember the woman who was on the ground and reached for the hem? That was a sign of submission. Did Jesus honor that? Yeah, he did. Above that, you would kiss the back of the hand, kind of maybe reminded of Great Britain and the kings and queens and all those things. And above that, you wouldn't kiss the back of the hand, you would kiss the palm of the hand. Then there might be a quick kiss on one cheek. And finally, the embrace of equals with the kiss on the cheek. But even with equals, the one who is in authority, as an example, a rabbi, would initiate that type of greeting, and he would offer the greeting. So what we're seeing here is Judas had no respect whatsoever for Jesus Christ. In Mark, we read that Judas called him rabbi. See, that's very telling because he even acknowledged him as his authority. And he still went up and kissed him, and I believe hugged him. Because there's 600 people trying to figure out who Jesus is. Mark 14, 45, we'll repeat it. He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, the next step would have been for Jesus to establish the next level of decorum. But while in mid-sentence, Judas rushed to him and kissed him on the cheek. <clears throat> we do not read that Jesus ever offered himself to Judas, ever, in this situation. He made no movement toward Judas. Jesus was separating himself, nor did he reciprocate in any way during this exchange. He didn't put his hand on the back of Judas and say, it's okay, brother. You had to do this. See, that's what people want you to think. You know what Jesus said about Judas? It's better for him to have never been born. As a matter of fact, the word Jesus used to address Judas in Matthew 26 is atire. When he called him friend, that word actually means more of fellow. Well, hello, fellow. Or our vernacular might be, hey, man. Now, can you see Jesus going... Hello, fellow. Or, hey, man. There's no affection in that. So 
So let's look at this for a brief moment. Matthew 26, verse 49 says, And he, Judas, came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, Friend or fellow. Now listen to this next phrase. This very next thing Jesus says to him. Do what you have to do. No, he didn't say that. Do what you came to do. Judas didn't have to do this. Even now. Do what you came to do. That's so telling. Hey, man. Do it. I know why you're here. So why did Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? I believe for all of the reasons we just talked about. Everything Judas did and how he did them was a reflection of who he was. Judas was driven by instinct. He did what came naturally for him. He's a traitor. He's not saved. His identity is a sinner. He thinks sinful thoughts, and there's no check in him that would deter those thoughts. He also did it for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. So here's my point. Judas showed up absolutely, and he showed no respect, no regret, no remorse for anything he had done or was in the process of doing. We will, lead, we will, we will read in a week or two that he did have regrets. The only reason he kissed Jesus on the cheek was to identify him to the soldiers as the one whom he had betrayed. And he did so in an arrogant brash and disrespectful way. And then we read this stinging and sorrowful response from Jesus. Luke twenty two forty eight. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I don't think that meant anything to Judas. It means a lot to us, right? Would you betray? He's identifying himself as a Messiah. Would you betray your Messiah? With a hypocritical kiss? I think Jesus was hurt. Psalm 41 7 says this, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's not an angry Jesus. Proverbs 27, 6, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Judas remained resolute. And now at this point, the 11 apostles suddenly get it. This is pretty amazing. They've been with him three years. Had their last time together. By the way, did anyone even notice that Judas was missing? We don't know. There's no dialogue either way with that. But Judas, Judas was missing. And Jesus is talking to them. He's been teaching them. They're surrounding him. 
this multitude comes up and it's overwhelming. 800 people maybe. 600 soldiers plus temple guards. And this is what made the 11 apostles go, Oh. Verse 49, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, in other words, they were going to take Jesus. They said, Lord, shall we strike them with the sword? 600 soldiers. Shall we go get them? Now, that has all kinds of opportunities to talk about that. We're not going to take the time. Other people smarter than me have talked about that already. But it does um, reflect an awareness and, I think, courage. Did anybody in that 11 really believe that two swords were going to get them out of that mess? No, but they were depending on Jesus, okay? So, so I wonder if we can find ourselves someplace in this story. Well, there's only two places we can find ourselves within any story when it comes to Jesus Christ. We are either identified with Judas or the apostles. And you might say, wait a minute. I may not be a Christian, but I am certainly not Judas. But actually, the only difference between Judas and any other lost person is that Judas' sin is more grievous. He's going to receive more punishment. We know that. Jesus said, you're going to wish you'd never been born, Judas. Judas will pay a much greater price for his betrayal. But being lost is still lost, and hopelessness is still hopelessness. The one thing that people who have not received the Lord Jesus Christ have in common with Judas is he didn't either. And his destiny is predetermined. And for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, their destiny is predetermined. So are you perhaps like the false prophet, false apostle Judas? So perhaps your part of the story is that you have been around people who love God. He was a lot. And perhaps you have gone to church a lot. And perhaps you have been a member and served on boards and ran the kids' programs or the student programs. Or you've taught Sunday school. Or you've been elders or deacons or pastors. And yet you have not surrendered to Christ. If that's the case, you have a lot uh, in common with Judas. He walked with God. And he was still not persuaded. Perhaps you're like the resolute Judas. Judas gave himself no opportunity to repent. His mind was already made up. Do you intentionally avoid any situation where you might be persuaded to receive Christ? Because you've already made up your mind. You have consistently chosen to reject Christ. And each opportunity that comes your way simply galvanizes your resolve to refuse Jesus. 
are you perhaps like an apostle? You've met Jesus and received him. You are still trying to figure some things out and you often stumble and fall. Guilty. You walk through trying times and wonderful times, but are blessed nonetheless through God's grace and mercy. We know that being a believer does not pave the way for an easy life. As a matter of fact, it typically complicates things. But even through these things, the losses, the disappointments, the failures, experiencing God's grace and mercy, you are grateful that the holy God of the universe miraculously picked you up out of your lostness and placed you in his family. Every salvation is a miracle. Every salvation is a miracle. It shouldn't happen. I pray you are in the final category with, with all of us others who struggle through the same things as you. But if you're not, you need to know that there's only one way to have any hope on this earth. And the hope is in eternity. And that way is to place your faith and surrender your heart of hearts to Jesus Christ. And by the way, you don't have to understand it any more than you can understand anything else upon this earth which takes faith. Uh, breathing air you can't see. Oxygen you can't see. We all live our lives by faith. The question is, in whom do we place our faith? There's only one who has eternity in his grasp and consistently offers it to the descendants of the man who did the most despicable sin, Adam. Just remember three small words, repent and receive. I don't know how to do that. Well, it just takes a sincere heart, sincere mind, where you finally get to the point where you say, I'm not sure I understand all of this. As a matter of fact, you can be sure you don't. But you understand it enough to say this, who I am right now is going nowhere. And that's the selfish side of salvation. Save me for my sake, God. That's the selfish side. And that's okay, because that's all you'll understand. It's man-centered salvation. God-centered salvation is save me for your glory. You want to know this? Something that's really interesting. I believe this is in Ephesians. I don't know for sure, but you know that every person who gets saved is God's trophy. It's Christ's trophy, really. So you can imagine heaven when you go up there and all the trophies that are there, the lives of the people that have surrendered to Christ. Now, my trophy is going to be a little itty-bitty, bitty, tiny thing. Some of yours are going to be this high. And I won't even be jealous then. I am now. But I won't be jealous then. So this is all it takes. Lord, I don't understand much of this, but I do understand that I'm not okay. And I have no future. So, Father, whatever this means to you, I believe Jesus is your Son. I believe you are God. 
And I believe the only hope I have in this life is anchored in the next life. And I surrender to you all that I am. Amen. That is salvation. Lord, we fall so short of even understanding your glory and your holiness. It takes a miracle to save us so that we can even have a glimpse of your holiness and glory. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that they will just say, yes, Jesus, yes, yes, yes. I want to be in your, in your family, God. And we trust, God, that you will do as you see fit. And through that, you will glorify yourself. And that's what we crave. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I would love to pray with you if you would love to have some prayer. We're getting ready to go to the chili cook-off. I'm sorry. You really need prayer for this meal because it's chili. And it's down yonder, across from Lens Crafters. Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you for this fellowship. And thank you for your, yeah, your glory and your tenderness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessings. I'll see you there.